Yes, indeed, and welcome to another week of the Diffusion Science Show, a week where too much science is, as they say, barely enough. Got a whole bunch of us in the studio here tonight. We've got Jackie. Say hi, Jackie. Uh, why don't I turn on your microphone? You can that say would that. be a good idea. Hello, better, there it? we go. Off to an excellent start. And over the other side of the room, we've got Adam. Good morning. Hello, how are you? Morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is, it's time for some science. And as we always do on this half-hour radio show of science, and every week we're going to kick off with a little bit of science news. <laughs> Up first in the science news today, uh, Kansas. Kansas and evolution has been a problem for a while. Those of you who have been watching the uh, the evolution debates know that uh, several years ago, the Board of Education in Kansas voted that uh, evolution was just one story and not a particularly good one at that about where we came from. And so probably intelligent design is, is worth teaching in our science classes as well. Well, the good news is that There's an election coming up for places on the Kansas uh, Board of Education, and it looks like some of the pro-evolution people are set to win those seats back from the pro-intelligent design people. The story that I'm looking at here, which is uh, from Science, has a couple of really nice quotes in it. One of the intelligent design proponents over there, a woman by the name of Connie Morris, has repeatedly mocked evolution as, quote, a nice bedtime story. (laughs) <laughs> Good oh, one to no. tell the kiddies there. But uh, certified public accountant John Bacon, who is one of the two pro-intelligent uh, design candidates who won in the, uh, in the primaries for these elections on Tuesday, so this guy's still around, said, um, it's unfortunate that we'll now be forced again to teach evolution as the only possible explanation for the origin of life, even though it's a lame explanation with very little scientific support. And he went on to say that the fight isn't over yet. So, fingers crossed for a, a good election over there. For the record, I think it's, it's probably unanimous here on the Diffusion Science Show that evolution is a scientific theory. We're not saying whether it's right or wrong, we're just saying it's scientific. Our main problem with intelligent design is, as good a story as it might be, it's not scientific. Anyway, over with more news to Jackie. Well, I've been checking out news at nature.com. And for all of those allergy sufferers out there, there's been some research done over at the Flanders Inter-University Institute for Biotechnology in Ghent in Belgium. Everybody knows about anaphylaxis and anaphylactic shock when you're allergic to something and and you have a reaction to it. Peanuts is the big one, Peanuts is the hugest. Things that might happen, you might start to swell. um, there's There's a lot of constricting of the neck. I mean, in really um, serious cases, you're basically keeling over and about Well, that's exactly right. Seconds, and so. what the thing's happening there is that the blood, blood pressure just drops dramatically, which is then the ultimate cause of death. Uh, now, anaphylaxis is treated commonly by antihistamines for more minor cases, but in severe, real severe cases of the shock, you need to have adrenaline pretty, pretty quickly. So what these researchers have done is rather than looking at, you know, how we can treat a shock once, once it's come on, but looking at what causes it. And what they've found is that it's actually levels of nitric oxide in the body that's causing it. And they've gone and had a look at, there's two different types of proteins which cause nitrous oxide. There's a little baby I-NOS and little baby E-NOS, 
I'm not quite sure how you pronounce <laughs> them not being in, this, in this that This is not your particular field. area of expertise. No, it's not my... Right. If you've got this little enos protein it, and it's causing it's causing nitrous oxide, that's it's creating bigger levels than little baby inos protein. And so what they found is by putting in nitric oxide blockers into mice and then subjecting them to different allergen-causing material that they went off with these blockers, they didn't have the anaphylactic shock. So maybe that's something that... So this could be can, used as a, as a treatment as a for treatment. people who've got yeah, these, rather, these allergies, putting in the rather blockers. Rather than a treatment, but more uh, a permanent cure, maybe. Permanent cure. Mm. Nice. Well, good news out there for all of those people who have got a bit of a problem with the peanut butter there. And the final news story for today, uh, we started with evolution. We're going to go back to monkeys, because it's always a good way to, to end the news, I always think, with monkeys. And <laughs> poor old monkeys, they've been outsmarted. They've been outsmarted by apes. See... We've known for quite some time, or we've assumed for quite some time, that we humans are the most intelligent species of the apes out there. Um, But no one's ever really gone and done a hell of a lot of tests on the other apes to see what's the ranking here. You know, is is a chimp smarter than a bonobo? Is a spider monkey smarter than an orangutan? What's going on? Well... Part of the problem there is, of course, how do you come up with the right test? Well, a bunch of people have actually gone and done these tests and, uh, and come up with the ranking. And it's um, in some ways not terribly surprising. In other ways, it is a bit surprising. Really? What you've have got they found? The, well, you've got the great apes as mm. coming out as more intelligent than their lesser you know, monkey-type cousins. Okay. And the, uh, the one who's at the top of the tree, just under us, well, not just under us, a bit down the rung from us, is the orangutan. And uh, apparently orangutans, they, they tend to sort of kick back a bit and, and have a bit of a think and try to think their way through a problem. Orangutans are also the escape artists of the zoo world. That They don't sort of rush the door and try to break out, but they look very carefully. Oh, he's putting I'm the key wait in your three turns turn. to the right, two turns to the left. I've just figured out the combination. Look over there, not a problem. And so you've got orangutans at the top. Interestingly, though, if you think about the size of the monkeys and the size mm-hmm. of the brains and so on, the gorilla is that's a big ass monkey but the spider monkey which is quite a small ape actually came out the same level of intelligence or even slightly more intelligent than the gorilla so the gorilla's oh, sort of sitting go. in the corner they're going that's not fair i want to i want to recap i'm bigger than you therefore I, I deserve to be smarter too Yes, you are listening to the Diffusion Science Show across the world podcast in Australia on the Community Radio Network and in Sydney specifically on Radio 2SER 107.3. Well, as any self-respecting science lover already knows, Australian National Science Week starts this Saturday, August the 12th. There are all sorts of interesting events planned during the week all over Australia, so make sure you investigate what's happening near you. Get out there and sniff out some science in your neighbourhood. If you happen to be in Sydney next week, then you can sit back and relax for the next couple of minutes while Diffusion's Tilly Belen does all your investigating for you. Earlier, Tilly spoke with Abby Thomas, who's from ABC Science, and Jessie Shaw from the Powerhouse Museum here in Sydney about how the newly hatched Ultimo Science Festival came about and what exciting adventures they have in store for us. Ultimo Science Festival, it seemed like a great idea at the time. What happened was um, we were having drinks after work with the local science communicators from the Powerhouse Museum, the ABC and UTS, and uh, 
and when uh, they announced that the Science Week grants were, were out, we were, I was organizing another drink session at the same time, and I thought, hey, guys, let's get together for drinks. Hey, guys, you want to put together a grant for, <laughs> for a festival together? And everyone said yes to both questions. So that's uh, how it came about. What month was this in? Uh, it was last year, September, I think it was, and uh, that's when the fun started. Because there was this realization that you had these four institutions up and down Harris Street. Yeah, that was the tape as well. Yeah, we wrangled yeah. in the TAFE, and everyone said yes, and it was a neighborhood. We just never, all of a sudden, the idea felt so good that no one had ever done a precinct event. I mean, there's this wonderful event that based on uh, the Australian Museum, which is called Science in the City, and they bring in all sorts of people there. But here, we were combining all these different institutions in the same neighborhood, as opposed to saying one, one institution was going to be the headquarters. It was like four institutions doing their own thing, but together and coordinated. Yeah, a so kilometer it, of science. A kilometer of science and technology. Yes. Okay. It's irresistible. So what are some of the big events that you're looking forward to and that you expect people to enjoy? So we've got Margaret Wertheim, who's I think is Australian-born but lives in the United States. She lives in Los Angeles, yep. Los Angeles, and she's an author of of science books. and um, Pythagoras' Trousers Mm. is one of her books. And she's a, sci- she's a science commentator these days and, and a sort of a sci- science philosopher. And she's very interested in things like um, how does science impact on, on religious thinking and how do they interact with each other. Um, she's also very interested in, in physics and um, in questions about the origins of the universe. She's an incredibly broad thinker and, and uh, should, be, should be a great night. So she's going to be talking at the, at the Powerhouse Cafe. That's right, the outdoor cafe. On with with Paul, uh, Paul Willis in conversation on, on a Thursday, that's Thursday the 17th of August. That's right, from, from 6, 6 to 8 p.m. And it's a free event, so there's no excuse not to come. The event is called Space and Spirit, Why Science and Religion Together Are Driving Us Crazy. And the thing with a lot of the events that I've seen listed on your website are, is that... They would be appealing both to the absolute mega-nerds as well as the non-science background people as well. There's a great breadth of experience of people and topics. Well, that's, that was the idea, is to, to reach a broad audience and, and to target events for different groups. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and even with some events, which they'll probably be, have a wide appeal and um, different people will get different things out of it. You know, they can always ask the nerdy question or the, the general <laughs> question, whatever they want. And, and science these days, I mean, it's, it's such a, it's such a um, broadly interesting thing. Um, you see it not just in the science section of the paper anymore, but, you know, scattered throughout the first few pages of, the, of, of most newspapers. Science, I guess, for, for many of us, has become p- part of popular culture. Mm. Um, and on television and, and in, in these sorts of live events. So, you know, I, I like to say that um, a Bachelor of Science is the new Bachelor of Arts. It's, it's a broad education and it's a, a broad way of looking at the world. Another person from overseas is Brian Cox. He's from the UK and he's being um, brought out with from the Australian Science Festival for a yeah. national tour and, and also British with the British Council. British Council, thanks to them. And he's, he's actually worked at the um, CERN laboratories, uh, high-speed particle um, laboratories, um, he's quite a notorious science commentator in, in Britain. He, he tackles all sorts of questions about um, extraterrestrial life and um, sort of, I guess, a lot of pseudoscience topics are, uh, he loves to sort of tackle on, on, uh, on television. But, yeah, he's, he's a, a real proper, genuine physicist as well. So he's going to be starring in a, a public event on, on Sunday night, August the 20th, at the Glasshouse Bar at University of Technology. We're going to be asking some of the biggest questions in the universe. 
how did the universe begin? What's dark matter? Is there really extraterrestrial life? All sorts of interesting questions like that. Brian's going to be there. We're going to have a fantastic local cosmologist called Charlie Lineweaver who's coming up from Canberra. Um, and that's going to be hosted by uh, the ABC's Bernie Hobbs and Paul Willis, who are always great fun and good value in those live events. And Brian has so much energy. He's doing a talk at 2 p.m. the same day at the um, at UTS at the University Hall, and that's called uh, Master Matter Blaster and the Beginning of Time. You thought of that, didn't you? I did, unfortunately. What <laughs> makes up What makes up the universe? I like alliteration. And on um, Saturday night, we have something completely different. It will be the Great Big Science Gig which will be sort of a cabaret show by three, um, two science communicators and a musician backing them up. And it's uh, all sorts of different types of music and different sort of science-y patter and lots of different fun. And this is the third year in a row they've done it. And uh, that should be worth going to. That's also at the, a UTS venue. Yep, 7 p.m. Singing, dancing scientists. That's something to be afraid of, isn't Ooh. it? <laughs> be afraid, be very afraid. But come and see it anyway. Yeah. Heck, you know? <laughs> and, um, and there's other evening events, but we should also talk about um, something other than those sort of events. We have a, a steam train. Um, behind the ABC, there is something called the Ultimo, Ultimo Pedestrian Network, and the locals would know about that. And there are tracks there that go connect to Central Station um, under the dive, they call it. I think it's called the dive. And um, from Wednesday the 16th through Sunday the 20th of August, we'll have um, the 1949 vintage steam train 3830 with a 1930s vintage carriage behind it. And um, people can go into the carriage and into the cab of the steam train and talk to our staff about, you know, the technology from that period of time. And a special event on Friday, the 18th of August, for one day only, the Rail Corp um, is letting us display the brand-new diesel-powered Hunter train cars. So we have um, technology from the steam era in comparison to the very latest diesel technology. So people can also walk through the hunted cars, see what's going to be on the rail, the uh, suburban rail network soon, and compare what nearly 60 years of difference in technology makes right there in front of you. I think it'll be a lot of fun. And, of course, there's the, the other end of the transport spectrum, which is the solar car. Um, we'll have a solar car from the University of New South Wales, a genuine one that's competed in a couple of the World Solar Challenge races. Um, that'll be on display in the ABC foyer for uh, a few days before the festival and right through the festival, including the weekend. Um, a good time to come and see it would be on Saturday the 19th of August when the ABC will throw its doors open for the whole day. There'll be all sorts of science stuff going on in the foyer. There'll be um, personalities from the ABC's New Inventors program. We'll have Tim Bowden along talking about Antarctica. Paul Willis and Bernie Hobbs will be there. Um, we're showing lots and lots of science films, including the vintage, speaking of vintage, Why Is It So? episodes with Dr Julia Sumner-Miller. So um, it should be a great day, 10 o'clock till 4 o'clock. Um, and lots and lots of science talks by people from the University of Technology about dinosaurs, mind-reading computers, all sorts of stuff. Abby, did I also see that there's some sort of speed meet scientists? That's right. We've, we've got a special um, speed meet a scientist event um, on Saturday evening from 5 till 7. Has this got any sort of romantic tinge to well, it? Well, it mentions look, you know, it's it like depends speed. how well it goes, I suppose. <laughs> Come and meet the scientist of your dreams. That's right. Well, everybody will get the opportunity to sit and talk um, with a scientist for a few minutes and and find out what, how they tick and, and whether they're actually real people behind those lab coats and glasses, which they are. We've, ch we've hand-picked some really, really interesting people. 
It's the top gun of scientists. That's right. Yeah, people can exchange the URLs at the end of the year. Oh. <laughs> Sorry I said that. No, I'm not. If you want to swap your URL with the scientist of your dreams, or you just want to come along and have some fun, check out all the events happening during the Ultimo Science Festival at www.ultimosciencefestival, all one word, dot com. funky little tune is from a group called Paris Combo. You probably wouldn't have picked it from the accents. And the track is called Make Café La NASA. A little ditty about presumably space travel in French. If any of you out there speak French, let us know what that was about. Um, you are listening to Diffusion, the weekly half hour of science over the radio waves and podcast around the world. Up next, a little bit about science and language. I mean, think about this one for a second. We've all read Shakespeare at school and we've all banged our head against a wall trying to understand what the heck the guy was on about because the English, it's, it's archaic, it's old, it's changed. You've really got to think hard about what the message is here go back even further to hieroglyphics, the translation's even harder. But looking forward, if language has changed so much, in 400 years, how are we going to be able to warn future generations about hazards that they're going to be facing, such as nuclear waste? Diffusion's Adam Richardson explains. Now, we've been talking about the Australian nuclear energy debate here in Diffusion for a few weeks, and the problem that keeps on coming up is what to do with the nuclear waste. 
This hasn't really been an urgent discussion as high-level nuclear waste takes about 30 to 50 years to cool down just to the point that you can deal with it. But now, 50 years after the first commercial reactors were built, governments around the world are facing with the problem of how to store this stuff for 15,000 years. Now, 15,000 years is an easy thing to say, but it's difficult to comprehend just how long a time that is. 200 or so years ago, Napoleon was marching across Europe. If we double that length of time, we're at the Renaissance in full swing. If we double that again, and we've got the Crusades marching towards the Holy Land. If we double that again, we've got Caesar and Cicero debating in the Forum of Rome. And doubling that again, we're finding weird guys called pharaohs who build stone mountains to mark the place where they're buried. Doubling the age of the pyramids, and we come across a time when the concept of towns and growing plants for food was being born, and we've still only gone half the way to 15,000 years. But storing radioactive material is not really that difficult a problem. Two billion years ago at Oklo in the West African nation of Gabon, a natural nuclear reactor formed as groundwater mixed with a uranium ore seam. The reactor burned for about half a million years and then ran out of fuel, billions of tonnes of rock protecting us from its radioactive waste. The American approach to the problem is to expand an abandoned salt mine in the deserts of New Mexico. The site was known as the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP, and it's been operating for about five years now. So if permanent storage is technically possible, what is the danger with storing our radioactive waste? Well, it's simple. Us. More specifically, future miners digging into an underground chasm they really don't want to be digging into, doing it either by accident or even possibly by design. The problem facing today's scientists, linguists and engineers is how to make it clear to future generations that these sites are dangerous places. The most obvious solution is to put a large stone plaques around the site engraved with warnings in all major languages. But as anyone who's tried to read the 600-year-old Canterbury Tales can tell you, languages change significantly over time. Other languages fade out of use and meaning of written text may be lost for centuries, such as Egyptian hieroglyphs, or may never even be rediscovered at all. This means that the warnings really can't be confined to written languages. If you look at the drawings in the caves of Lescaux, rock overhangs in Arnhem Land or modern-day public toilets, you'll see a common trend. Whether they're hunting bison or standing upright guarding a door, a stick figure is instantly recognisable by all humans, regardless of cultural or edu educational backgrounds, a symbol that transcends time. But even something this simple is prone to error, as was discovered in South Africa recently, when pictographic instructions on comic strips were used in mines to tell miners who could not read or write to clear rocks from train tracks. Because the miners had no background in reading, half read the comics left to right and cleared the rocks, while the other half read right to left and obligingly dumped rocks where they weren't supposed to. So because there's no such thing as a sign that can't be misinterpreted, the WIP team have to study... Uh, perceptions of safety and alarm and devise a series of structures to confuse anyone who tries to enter the WIP site. The first would be a berm, 10 metres high, 30 metres thick, 3 kilometres long, surrounding the entire mine site. Within this structure would be embedded high-powered permanent magnets and radar reflectors to announce the existence of the warning to future generations. There would also be 32 giant granite markers around the site, uh, on the inside of the berm and a further 16 on, on the outside, each 8 metres tall and weighing 100 tonnes, on which written warnings would be engraved. Large discs, some made of metal, others made of ceramic, would be buried around the site with the same written warnings on them, and three large information rooms scattered around the site and nearby mountains would contain more tablets, 
with further warnings and maps to other known waste sites. The rooms would be accessible only through a narrow 60 centimetre hole blocked with an 800 kilogram stone plug and each tablet would of course be larger than 60 centimetres so they couldn't be removed by souvenir hunters. But even these measures will not be enough. We're the first generation in history to guard items that are neither precious, powerful nor sacred. Future societies may, not, may follow more general rules and only protect things of value and view the extreme measures we take as indicating a great buried treasure. Also, man-made structures, regardless of their original intent, will always be viewed as shelter. Even a series of man-made steep-sided ravines forming a complex maze designed to turn around and disorientate any investigator may only act to attract curious tourists of the future. So what's the answer? How do we communicate with someone in the future who may not know anything about us or our languages? Well, it's been tried before. In 1972, the two Pioneer spacecraft were launched beyond their solar system carrying gold-plated aluminium plaque, telling its discoverer about Earth and humans. In 1977, an even more ambitious attempt was made with gold record being sent with a Voyager spacecraft. While we don't know how these messages will be received in space, their designers were able to show them to scientists here on Earth to test them out. Unfortunately, despite the scientists already knowing that they were, in fact, on the planet Earth, and knowing what a man and a woman were, they still couldn't fully decipher the plaques. So the story of how to protect high-level radioactive waste from ourselves can perhaps be best summed up by an incident at the Project Gnome nuclear weapon test site, where a plaque reading, this site will remain dangerous for 24,000 years, was pried off its mountain with a crowbar and stolen as a souvenir. Adam Richardson there taking the long-term view on radiation hazard warnings. Frankly, we here on Diffusion have enough trouble being understood by people who speak the same language as us now. Yes, indeed. Unfortunately, that is all the time we've got for another edition of Diffusion. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to drop us a line and just tell us how great we are, or if you've got a really big complaint about some awful factual error we've made, or if you're from the Kansas Board of Education and you uh, want to take issue with our first news story today, then drop us a line. We're diffusion at 2ser.com. Well, you've been listening to, on the show today, Jackie Peffer... Adam Richardson, and not here in the studios with us, but who carried out the interview earlier, Tilly Belen. My name's Chris Stewart. I've been producing and presenting the show today up here in the plush velvet studios of 2SER in Sydney. We are broadcast around the country by the Community Radio Network. And, of course, we're podcast. Just simply point your browser of choice towards feeds.feedburner.com and see if you can find us, or go through iTunes. We're on there as well. Not too hard to find. But that's all we've got for this week. Join us again in a week's time for another half hour of the best science around on Diffusion. Diffusion.